Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. Hello, my name is Dave Hanready and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode four of the No Popcorn Film and Music Podcast, the big brother to the No Encore Music Podcast. I'm joined once again by my partner in crime, David Higgins. Dave, good to be here again. Is it though? Well, I think we've already talked a, a little a little tired today because as like other people at the content call face, I've had to get up very early to watch Game of Thrones. But aside from that, and to talk about punks and Nazis. Yeah, a heavy film coming your way, guys. Green Room from 2015, directed by Jeremy Saulnier. Um, one of uh, the late Anton Yelchin's finest, finest, rather final performances, but I would argue that it is a very good one, too. Um, yeah, so I guess, uh, for anyone who doesn't know what No Popcorn is, real quick, it is a podcast show in which we discuss a film that has a musical connection. So far we've done Bohemian Rhapsody, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, and Straight Outta Compton with a splash of the dirt don't go watch the last one because it's terrible. And yeah, so we you picked this one. I did. Um, I picked this one because I, I wanted to do something in fiction. Um, I will go straight to the spoiler. This movie is fantastic, but um, it's primarily known for being incredibly intense, uh, guttural, 
violent movie, but uh, why I wanted to pick it is that, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, is that I feel that it really, really nails what it's like to be in a shit band that is just touring around, playing awful venues. Um, one of the kind of the, the the things that we've dinged a lot of the, the movies we've done so far is that like bands just seem to like kind of form. There's not really much, you know, struggle and then they become superstars. Uh, so I thought it was important to do a movie about a band that, you know, case of not being playing a, a show with violent neo-nazis that they wouldn't have made it regardless like they were never going to make it yeah that's totally fair um okay so i guess our traditional preamble here is what we've been watching lately i don't think i've got anything to really report here i watched wrestlemania and i stayed up for that and i went to bed before the main event because i was like this is just too much what what time did it run until in the end it ran until half five in the morning i believe which is just way too much start at like 10 if you include the pre-show i watched nxt on the friday uh which was a three-hour show and that was fantastic that's that's what you should watch if you're a wrestling fan. WrestleMania is too fucking much, man. It's just not fun. It's really horrible. So uh, what I've read in saying NXT is for the uh, if you were an ECW fan, kind of that le- not necessarily the violence, but like that level of technicality. That's what you would want. It's a hardcore thing, and as much as like yeah, like you're getting uh, long wrestling matches in which everyone gets their shit in, and the crowd are kind of a, a very vocal. It's smaller. It's just better, you know. It's just a lot more fun. There's five matches. All of them were great. And WrestleMania is just like, you know, it's the brand. It's 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 the pageantry. It's insanely long. It's not really enjoyable. And everyone gets tired long before it's over, including myself. And yeah, so I, I don't... I'm probably forgetting something, but I, I haven't been to the cinema lately. Uh, we're both very curious about that new Hellboy movie, because apparently it's terrible. Yeah, um, yeah, we were briefly talking about it before we got in here. Just seems like a terrible idea. I thought we were past... Uh, you know, a comic book movie, but what if it's edgy? And it's just like we're going back there again. That's mm. that's what we need you to do. You can thank Deadpool for yeah, that. Yeah, I was just about to say, yeah, it's totally because of that. Yeah. Um, I did go to the cinema. All right. I went to see The Sisters Brothers. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jacques Odiard's English language debut. Um, great cast. You've got Joaquin Phoenix, uh, John C. Riley, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Riz Ahmed. Um, Disappointed to say, I've been a big fan of uh, Jacques Odiard's work, and it's a bit of a letdown. It's a Western, right? It's a Western. It's also a dark comedy. Um, it's got some family drama in it. I don't feel it leans into any of them in particular. Tell me about Rucker Hauer. Rucker Hauer is in two scenes. He does not say a word. He is framed um, through a window, looking ominous, down on a thoroughfare, and the next time we meet him, he is dead in a casket. Sorry, that's it's not really a spoiler. <laughs> I mean, he's not in this movie. I don't think people are like racing at the door to see the sisters, brothers. Yeah, I think it, it might be gone. Um, yeah, I'd like to say it's a recommend because um, you know the performances are good. It looks nice, but it kind of just doesn't doesn't really connect. And then kind of it veers into prolonged scenes of panning for gold, which you know. I feel like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs did a little bit better. I do intend to rewatch Deadwood now that we're getting the movie. Oh, yes, absolutely. When you say panning for gold. So, one film I did see in the cinema back in 2015 was Green Room. For anyone who doesn't know what this film is, it's an independent film. It's a thriller slash horror. I'd say it leans more towards the latter. It's about a punk band on the road who have a gig cancelled and they get offered a backup gig, which is in some kind of weird warehouse slash club in the middle of nowhere. Uh, where they will be told that they will be performing in front of white supremacists, and they're told, no, no, it's grand, Like, just go, play, get out, you'll be fine. They're not fine. Uh, shit hits the fan really, really badly after they play. They happen upon a murder, and they get boxed into the titular green room, and it's a fight for their lives. That's the movie. 
And yeah, I'm going to join you in in coming out straight away and saying this is a phenomenal film. Um, I know that like you know with the first episode of the show we did with Peeman Rhapsody and it's fun to, to tear stuff apart and ultimately they might be our best episodes quote unquote but like it, this is a, an excellent excellent film and I hadn't rewatched it in cinema because it's just so fucking intense and then you couple in how intense it is and we'll get to that you couple that in with like the untimely death of Anton Yelchin and it just felt like I don't know if I can go back to this world um, so I'm glad that you made me go back because having watched it this afternoon the sense of dread kicked in about 14 minutes into this film yeah the 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 minute they get to that club oh the pacing in this is unbelievable yeah um because you get uh, i suppose we can we can kind of jump in from the start you get this first 14 minutes or so is life on the road for a touring band um this is about a band called the ain't rights they're a punk band like touring across america from i think dc they're over in the pacific northwest in around oregon basically siphoning petrol from from cars to get from show to show they're playing these you know small gigs they're playing in like restaurants um like it's 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 going badly and it's a hard brand of punk as well like yeah it's very confrontational so i mean so there's four members in the band uh, anton yelchin alia shaka of arrest development fame joe cole of peaky blinders fame your Joe Coles. And a guy called Callum Turner, who's another Brit who has an American accent. He's a singer of the band, a guy named Tiger with green hair. And yeah, so it starts off, right? And like the first thing you're kind of hit with is, as you say, the authenticity of being on the road. Now, you, we, we've dabbled in the world of, of music. I was in a couple of bands. We never really bought a van. We, we literally never bought a van. And we played a handful of gigs. Probably played about 20 or 30 in my life. Never big. Never going to be big. That's fine. I've made my peace with it. Um, I don't know your full story, but I do know that you have gone on the road. I have gone on the road. I've never been in a band, um, but... About 10 years ago, I had some, I was living in Canada and had some friends who, you know, not a dissimilar situation. They, they were touring. Um, I had an opportunity to go touring with them for a month across Canada. So it would have been from coast to coast, from Vancouver all the way out to Montreal and everything that's in between. So, so you were like a roadie? Yeah, I was a ro- roadie and I did merch for them as well. What kind of band was it? They were a hardcore band, kind of comparable to an Alexis on Fire protest the hero you never wound up at a, bats. A, a, a like a neo-nazi club or anything no no they tended to be a lot more all-age shows <laughs> okay uh, tell me your wildest uh, on the road story because you have told me a story before that was pretty great yeah so we we did we all we all kind of and what i love about this film is that it like it gets to the idea of living in the van like they the, the best that you could hope for playing these shows is that you play a show and somebody would be like, you guys were really, really great. And it's like, oh, cool. Is there like a floor we can all sleep on in your house? Sometimes that would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. So a lot of the times you would be basically, I guess we're going to sleep in the van. So there was eight of us all together in a in a 12 seater van. Uh, they tore the back seat out and tried to build like a really cobbled together uh, bunk bed that just didn't really work. Sounds like a fight club on the road. Yeah. Ra- radicalization station a little bit so our our kind of our, our big moment on the tour was um they they played some shows in hamilton ontario and canada obviously is a massive country but there's not a lot of cities kind of outside of the coast so you get like calgary edmonton winnipeg and then after winnipeg you've got a pretty long jump to get to toronto hamilton ottawa all the main cities of ontario so they'd been playing a show there and we'd stayed with a friend that night and had a show in winnipeg in two days so that's like over two thousand kilometers away 
So you're looking, it's cl- it's quicker if you drive through America, but we didn't want to drive through America. Um, so we made the poor decision of staying an extra night in the friend's house and being like, oh, we'll just do it in one go, a 24-hour straight shot all the way to Winnipeg. So on a, uh, a nighttime drive, uh, most of us were like asleep in the van. I was asleep on the top bunk of the... Uh, of the bunk bed in the back. Now, please describe your 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 spatial like location here between like I'm imagining. Have you, you seen the movie Buried with Ryan Reynolds? Because <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining you like kissing it's, that it's roof. It's borderline, yeah, kissing the the mold on the roof of a van. <laughs> um, so I was kind of like half. You could never really sleep properly on it. It's like dazing in and out, dazing in and out. And the, there was two lads. We always had like made sure that if someone was driving, someone was staying awake with them just to keep. Keep, keep talking to them and, you know, get them through the night. And someone just was like, oh, well, what, what's that? And then there was like a brief swerve um, kind of into the middle of the road, a quick readjustment and then an absolute thundering bang. <laughs> so everyone started screaming. <laughs> uh, the driver, he kept uh, driving a little bit further down the road and we pulled in all like shook to our court, like what just happened? And he was like, oh, I just hit a deer. And we were like, oh, God. So we, we waited there a bit, trying to, like, calm down. Um, a car was coming down the road. Like, you know, you know in, uh, like, highways in America where there's literally no lighting. It's just, like, it's the, it's the road. It's the desert. Like, once you're kind of going into Winnipeg, like, in the prairies, it's just flatland, so there's nothing. So we're kind of just in the middle of nowhere. Uh, a car pulled up behind us, and they were just like, hey, you guys, uh, you hit a deer back there. We were like, oh, God. This deer is done, I presume. This deer was done, yeah. Um, Obliterated. Yeah, so we kind of were like, they're like, you need to do something about it. We were like, what What do you do? You're apparently supposed to uh, call someone and have it taken away. But um, And a good thing that this movie touches on is that they only have one cell phone in the band because of long distance calling within a big country like America. So we didn't really have the facilities. We Like, literally, you'd get somewhere and you'd be like, what's the Wi-Fi? What year was this again? Uh, 2008. Okay. So, anyway, these nice Samaritans decided that they would call whoever needed to be called to take the deer away. I don't know if they were smart. I think they were like suspicious of this rando Irish van full of 12 people. Well, I was the only Irish person. Ganged to fucking deer. <laughs> so we drove on anyway to the next petrol station. And when we got there, basically two police cars were like pulled in. Police officers <laughs> just shooting the shit. Uh, it was at this stage that because it was so dark on the road, we hadn't really realized the sheer damage that we'd done to the van. So we got out and like, not unlike this movie, the amount of blood that was on the side of the van, along with the headlight torn out, um, the police said nothing to us. Amazing. I don't know what that says about the uh, the RCMP in Canada. We're looking at the amount of police. Yes. Amazing. So that was my, that was my green room, green room moment. Jesus, hairy enough. Yeah, I mean, um, the the driver was a he he drove like big rig trucks, so he kind of knew that like you kind of have to if something like comes out in front of you, you got to hit it. So he hit it because it was like a van, eight people in it, and then a trailer full of gear. Like you know, you swerve a little bit, and then that flips. We were also lucky that it was not a stag because if it was a stag and had antlers, it was going through the windshield. Insta death. <laughs> Insta death for everyone involved. We're <laughs> all involved, but anyway. We made it, played lots of shitty shows um, for little money to not large crowds. Incredible. So this movie speaks to me. <laughs> yeah, the first 40 minutes are all about that. I mean, what is the background to this movie as well? I mean, like... Um, so, Jeremy Saunier 
is he this was his third film um he'd made a movie in 2007 called murder party which is this kind of crass um sort of horror comedy very carpenter inspired about um art students who want to murder someone and they have a party to do it it didn't do particularly well um like he was in his early 30s when he made it and after that he kind of he didn't make another movie for a while he was working as a cinematographer kind of just like paying bills um so he'd made uh, Murder Party with Macon Blair, who is also in this, is kind of his, his longtime collaborator. His muse. His muse, yeah. Um, so in 2013, they made a movie called Blue Ruin together. And they kind of made it as a, this is kind of us, you know, bidding farewell to filmmaking. They're like they, they were both married. They both had kids. Um, and they were like, let's get the money together for a movie. They, they ran a Kickstarter to do it. Um, he threw the rest of the production budget on his credit cards, shot it for... 400 grand and it did incredibly well it was like an indie darling that year it made a good bit of money at the box office so then it actually kind of put him in a position where oh maybe this filmmaking thing might actually work for me um so then he moved on to his next project um he had been in a punk band for years um a band called no turn on fred so he kind of wanted to make a movie about that he liked the idea of a siege movie he thought that the green room is a kind of a place that everyone wants to be at a gig. And he also kind of thought, again, like conscious of like growing oldness that, you know, further on in his career, if you become a respected filmmaker, it's pretty difficult to go back and make a super grotty punk fight Nazi movie. Um, so, yeah, he got this together. He got it distributed through A24, who are kind of like the... The, the boutique production company in America, they'd had big success with Spring Breakers and um, Lock Under the Skin. They released Room in America. So they've kind of like within the film world, they're almost like they they are a brand. It's like, oh, what's A24 coming out? So, oh, yeah. When you see that at the start of a movie, like, you know, you're it's getting, like it's a stamp of approval. You want it to like hereditary and stuff like that yeah. as well and more to come. Uh, OK, so like, uh, thank you for that. That was very thorough. <laughs> And then, like, moving into the film, I mean, like, the first, like I say, before, you know, the camp before the storm, you get to hang out with the band a little bit as they go on the road. They're siphoning gas illegally from other vans. They do an interview with a journalist, and, you know, he says that their gig has been cancelled. He's got another one for them. Uh, I mean, like, I found that in the first few minutes, like, just when they're hanging out in the van, like, this thing is beautifully shot. I mean, shout out to cinematographer Sean Porter. Uh, It's gorgeous to look at, even at its grainiest. It's one of the prettiest, ugliest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, you can see, um, like, Sonia himself is a was a cinematographer before and had been, um, like, the, those shots, like, overhead aerial shots of, like, the Pacific Northwest and, like, just, he has a really, really incredible eye. Mm. And uh, even, Yeah, even, like, just them looking out of windows. Okay, so, I mean, like, the band, the Ain't Rights, uh, from Washington, D.C., but technically from Arlington, as they, 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 they are the journalists now. Um, essentially, like, you get some... One thing that I really, really love about this film is there's a lot left unsaid, and there's a lot of little details that actually are very, like, f- uh, function for the plot very well. Like, they mentioned that they've no social media presence because they're, you know, like, once you take once you go virtual, you lose some integrity or yeah. something. But because they've no social media presence, it means that, you know, when, when it all goes down, like, even if they had a phone or whatever, like, they can't go on Twitter or whatever. Yeah. And, and, like, and again, one phone as well. One phone, which, you know, Aaliyah Shawcott's character pay, pays the bills for that. So... It, 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 there are little kind of things, little barriers in place because of their own kind of way that they choose to live. Um, we get like, you know, little moments again, like the singer says, I won't live to be 70. 
and he doesn't. No. Uh, they, 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 there's a runner in this film, but like they're Desert Island Band. Like, what's your Desert Island Band? And like that comes back. So th- these things are all like established, really. And essentially, um, I have a question for you before we go because like they, you mentioned like you know like going to a place and, and looking for a place to crash. They crash in this guy's gaff. He's like uh, he's the guy who interviews them. He's a punk himself. And he's the one when he says, "Look, I had a gig for you, but it's fallen through. But I've got this backup one, the you know the the the, the gig that will end them as a band in many ways." Uh, he seems like a nice enough dude. He does. Do we think he set them up? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's his cousin. He mentions his he, cousin. He, he mentions his cousin. Who, his cousin is revealed to be um, part of the neo-Nazi group, but you know, one of the more likable versions of neo-Nazi, someone who is actively looking to escape that life. He doesn't seem to deal with his cousin's politics as much. Yeah, like he does. He seems a he a seems like a nice solid. enough guy. Yeah, like I mean, I think in a lesser film there would be a moment where he's revealed as being in on it. Um, so they go to the they go to this place and it's in this kind of leafy backwoods area, and like the set design is brilliant. It's incredible. Um, yeah, I think it was the the green room was filmed on the stage, but like it looks so so lived in. Like the green room in particular, like the couch, it's like, where did they find that? It just like, it looks like the, you know, you found it like at the back of a skip and it's just like, oh, yep, we put that in there. That makes sense for here. Um, everything about the design is immaculate. Yeah. So they go in and there's like a band playing a band called Cowcatcher and their front man is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Firm. Well, the casting in this film is really good across the board. And I was looking at like some of the, low, the, the the smaller parts, and a lot of these actors don't have Wikipedia pages, so I assume they're all independent or whatever. But like, everyone kind of is kind of no perfectly cast. I mean, the band are very believable as a band. They're believable as friends. They're believable as like kind of different individuals within the band. They they look the part. They kind of move like a band. They look like a band. Uh, this hardcore band, Cowcatcher, are scary as fuck, and will play a part as well. And even just like all the skinheads, you know, everyone looks legit. And of course, I guess the big kind of pull for a lot of people in this movie is the head of the neo-Nazis, as they are, of course, revealed to be neo-Nazis, who have an organization. And this is essentially like their, you know, their their HQ. Like this is where they, they hold uh, like... Racial advocacy classes. Racial advocacy workshop, yeah. like and And gigs and stuff. Patrick Stewart... Everyone's favorite uncle, Patrick Stewart, is in fact the head of the Nazis. Um, yeah. I guess that's a lot of people kind of you know like what the fuck is a stunt casting? Does he pull it off? Um, it's not stunt casting. I think it's it's one of the best cast roles I I can think of in recent years. Um, the, I I always love when you take an actor and we all kind of have preconceptions about an actor. When you say a certain actor's name, there's something that you think of immediately. And with Patrick Stewart, it's just paternal intelligence um erudite calm all those things that are amazing about him when you flip them on you make him such an incredible villain mm. and there's bits of that when he kind of first shows up so okay so like not to get too far out of the plot here but like they play their they go out and they play their set and like they they're in the green room and they notice like um what's that flag the the confederate confederate, confederate flag yeah and they're not impressed and they're kind of like i've got an idea and they go out and they play the track that we've heard that kicked off this show which is a cover of Nazi Punk's Fuck Off. And they play that song in front of a bunch of Nazis, which, I mean, it could have gone worse, you know? Yeah, they get like a a bottle or two thrown at them. And people are not impressed. And then they start playing their own tunes and they kind of went over the crowd a little bit. You don't get too much of, you you don't spend too much time with them playing. Uh, This is a film that moves at a clip 
and it uses everything quite sparingly. There's even a bit earlier on with it when they're like in the gaff and they go to throw on some tunes. And as soon as he turns it on, it gets turned off. And you, you get like a, a one, two, three, four count in, and then it's just like a smash cut to the mall. The next morning, out. yeah, yeah, which is just really like it, it subverts your expectations as you go. So then they go backstage and they walk into. I think they're they're leaving at this point, but they forgot something in the green room. Yeah, they forgot the phone. They go back in and they discover that a murder has taken place. There was a girl glimpsed in the crowd, in, in the crowd rather, and the front man of Cowcatcher has put a fucking knife in her head. She's on the ground. Imogen Poots, who's in this movie, is cowering in the corner, crying, and there's a commotion. And the commotion gets worse when two two key characters here, you've got a guy called, called Big Justin, who's like the bouncer, I guess. Who, by the way? I mean, this guy, his name is Eric Edelstein. He actually was in the most recent season of Twin Peaks. I... If you told me that this was David Harbour having put on some method acting weight, I'd believe you. Oh, totally, yeah. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. It's ridiculous. He is incredible. Again, like when you talk about kind of as you go down the, the cast list of people that they got, like Big Justin is just like, he's incredibly charming. He's incredibly menacing. Um, he sells the shit out of his speech. Um, yeah, just incredible. And who else were you talking about? Well, Macon Blair, who's Gabe, who was the lead of Blue Rune and is now here again. And he's Gabe, who like there's something about Macon Blair's eyes, puppy dog, puppy dog. And yep, he's one of these guys for sure. But he looks even from the outset that there's something more about him. You can he might not be in on everything. He doesn't seem to be a monster, and he is furious at what has happened because they were not supposed to get back into that room because the door wasn't locked, because they went in, they ain't coming back out. You mentioned Big Justin's speech. Is that around this time? Um, so ba- basically, they to, to, to kind of kick forward a bit, they get ushered back into the room. Um, Gabe introduces a gun into the equation and gives the gun to Big Justin, who kind of is holding the band in the green room while they wait for Darcy, who's Patrick Sears' character, to, to come so they can kind of try and sort things out. Um, so yeah, I think about this time, uh, Big Justin has a, has a speech. The, the Ain't Rights are kind of considering their situation where there's, there's four of them, he's got a gun, there's six bullets in it. Let's, uh, let's l- let him take us through it. He's got six bullets. For real? We all go once. Christ, hold off a sec. For what? We haven't done anything. Doesn't matter. Okay. They're called cartridges. The bullet is a part that enters your brain if you keep talking shit. And this gun only has five cartridges, not six. Because they're big as fuck and only five fit the cylinder. So please, shut the fuck up and don't test me. You're making it worse. We sit and we wait. And we die. Not if you sit and you wait. And that effectively, there's our stakes, you know. Can they get out? Will they survive the night? What's going to happen? How do you get out of the situation? Uh, you mentioned Patrick Stewart. He gets called in to kind of firm things up. And he's definitely playing the role of like, no, we're not going to harm you. Don't worry about it. Like, just, you know, let's just negotiate this. But, you know, you can tell that's not really going to happen, is it? Yeah. And again, like using his, you know, his calm his calmness in his voice like he doesn't he doesn't like raise his voice once at all in this movie it's just like quiet menace throughout and yeah the ain't rights kind of know that they're they're screwed yeah and i mean like the fit like even when this is happening there's like a band on stage and it's kind of the noise is like bouncing around the corridors it's not quite social network scene where they're in the club which is often cited as like a really great example of like this feels real because you're like you know amazing TV scene where someone walks into a nightclub and they're talking at room level 
and there's like music being played and it's clearly like two different things that aren't in any way crossing over. But you have that scene in the social network between Timberlake and Eisenberg and they're like shouting at each other as you would in a nightclub yeah. as we've all done in a fucking nightclub at 2am. And this isn't quite there but it's not far off. You have moments where like you might miss a word or two because you do Yeah, hear people it. are talking over each other. You've got the you know, live sound coming in. They kind of, they, they address it because Darcy eventually is just like, can I just talk to one of you? And then it kind of goes to a little bit more of a, a traditional dialogue. Yeah, even like that, like his kind of hostage negotiating skills, not quite Samuel L. Jackson level, but I mean, he is kind of being like, let's have one voice here. And I've written down here, like sound design and sense of place is fantastic. The geography of where they are, like the the, the club, the green room, outside of it where the, the, the neo-Nazis are now amassing and recruiting and like planning out their strategy, they're strategizing as they go. Uh, sends it like like you can see films and they, they can deal with in big and small locations and environments and you might not have a fucking clue what's going on and what is where with this one I felt like I was looking at a top down map in a video game yeah absolutely it's just like you know outside then you have two trailers outside you know within them you have the green room you have the main room the bars to the left the kitchens in the back that's it like there's the stakes yeah sure look we'll get a listen to Patrick Stewart okay now you're trapped that's not a threat, it's a fact. Well, we have a loaded gun. It's also just a fact. Oh, we have plenty more guns on hand. We just want you out, not harmed. Now, the firearm you have is not registered. I wanted it out of the picture before the authorities arrived, but you refused, so here we are. Bullshit. Yeah, here we are. Oh, I do apologize for my associates. They panic. Yeah, no shit, man. Listen. No one is trying to wipe the slate clean. Whatever you saw or did is no longer my concern. You tell whoever you want, whatever you want. All I ask is that you understand you were held here for your own safety before you were released. Yeah, charming, charming man. You know, doesn't want to hurt you. Um, I, again, another like, like, like as I'm writing this down, I'm I'm just writing down like praise as I go. But like the pacing and the timing is is just superior in this. I mean, like, like everything is moving so fast. You're thrown into this film, like, and you're with them. Like, I felt like you're like, oh my god, I feel trapped. I feel stuck now. What the fuck's gonna happen? And even again, little details like uh, he says when he's getting guys to come in and basically like sort this mess out. He says red laces only. Yeah. And that tells you so much without him stopping and being like, the Red Laces, of course, are, are a crack squad. But like, you don't get any of that. You just, you just know. You're just like, well, clearly that means something fucking awful. There's so much um, plot on the periphery of this movie. Like, it, when, you, when you think about what actually happens, it, and nobody ever really explicitly says, like, why was uh, Emily killed to begin with? It's kind of like it's there in the periphery. Um, you have, um, she was trying to run away with... Um, a guy called Daniel, who's played by a guy called Mark Weber, who plays the frontman of the band in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. So there's a very different uh, music-related movie for him. He also plays Bud White in the latest TV adaptation of LA Confidential. Oh my god. Like, was, that, was that not cancelled? Opposite uh, Walton Goggins, Jack Vincennes. I think it got piloted and then... I think that was it. Yeah, okay. I think that was about it. <laughs> Jesus, that's a weird choice. Um, yeah, there's these, there's all these tiny little details going on um, just through a, a sentence or two, a look someone gives someone yeah. else. You get a sense of the hierarchy of these characters and where they rank within the organisation just by like a tone of voice or a reference to something. Like this is not This film does not hold your hand. Like it doesn't give you like a legion of exposition. Like it, like it's so 
it's so economical that way like it's so clever that way where like you can you, it gives you just enough you know you pick up on it you understand that these characters have certain relationships and have certain like structures within them and uh, and, and all of this is happening in real time and you know like th- it's very much an in media res movie i mean like there's just there, there's no flashbacks there's, the build-up is very slight you're in this moment like it's a siege movie and you're with these characters and for, for him to create this on both sides you know with the good guys and the villains is so fucking impressive like yeah um you mentioned siege movie so like this definitely inverts the the siege movie um you know we're kind of used to siege movies that are you know set in prisons or you know war movies this is a war movie but you know the stakes are slightly you know smaller but you know your 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 heroes are completely useless in a sense it's something that he touched on a lot in blue rune where it's just like if you or I were put in a, a situation like this, we'd be pretty bad at it, you know. Um, I think they're quite clever in, you know, he sets up a member of the band who's good at MMA, finds a use for it, but, like, is the one who's probably killed most unceremoniously. Just that like, scene. Okay, well, we'll get to that in a second, because when the deaths come, they come thick and fast, and that one really fucking got me. But, like, basically, the violence, like, Saulnier, I find presents violence in such an impactful way that is neither gratuitous nor throwaway and yet at the same time it kind of is like he has a serious ability to present you with something genuinely horrific in a matter of fact finger snap way that it's just it's kind of mind-blowing and it's it's interesting because like you've seen how many films have you seen where like you know, someone gets like riddled with bullets or whatever or is like stabbed repeatedly or something and there's no way to it that you feel nothing you know it just looks dumb or you know it's fake you feel every fucking impact here and it starts off in insane fashion when there's a moment where they're they have a gun because big justin had a gun and patrick stewart using again logic and intelligence is telling them that like it's an unlicensed gun it's not registered the cops have already come and gone the reason the cops have come and gone is because they've set up another stabbing which two, quote, true believers have have done to kind of give the impression that that's what the cops were originally coming back for. So they hand over this gun, and as this happens, as Anton Nelson is, like, like prying open the door to put it outside, his arm gets uh, fucking latched off screen, and you just hear sounds. Yeah, you have uh, tigers, like, kind of, I don't know, he has like some piece of steel, and he's just, like, jamming it behind the door, trying to get people away. You know that there is a bunch of... Red laces. Nazis, red laces there and it's the sound at first like again you talked about the the sound design it's just like you know you can hear something utterly terrible is happening behind that door as and Antonio you're probably not screaming, even really ready for what it is screaming and crying pulls his arm back in and it has been hacked apart by machetes like there's one shot of like the, the the wrist the wrist at the front and his hand is basically hanging off and it's just like it shows you all of it but yeah. it doesn't linger on it. It shows you just enough. And Anton Yeltsin is like, you know, in shock and crying. And you're like, holy fuck. Like, what the fuck is happening? This is not what you're anticipating will happen at all. This guy's supposed to be our hero. And he's just been fucking mangled half an hour into the film. Yeah. And while that's happening, you're also getting a incredibly utter difficult scene to watch uh, with Big Justin's arm is broken by Reese just like snapped in a UFC armbar style fashion again with like a pop. Uh, he then gets choked out, comes back, gets choked out again. And when they're like, are we sure he's down this time? Imogen Poot steps up with a box cutter and fucking zippers him up his stomach. And again, you're like, 
what film am I watching here? Like, yeah. what's, what the hell, man? It's just fucking visceral. Like, can I ask what the audience reaction was like when you saw that in the cinema? I saw it at a press screening at half ten in the morning. Oh wow, it was intense. Like um, it was a weird, it's a weird movie to watch that early in the I morning. saw it on like a Saturday at approximately 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny summer day. Oh, wow. And the, I think it was Sydney World at the time. I think I had the card. Um, like it wouldn't have been full or anything. Yeah. Um, but there were moments and there was a gasp when that happened. And there was definitely some kind of flinching and like when uh, Anton Yeltsin gets his fucking, his arm ripped open. And there's a actually a beautiful moment of all, of all things where... The when they're kind of about to make a break for it or try and you know try and get out of there, the the Desert Island Band thing comes back up and they'd all been kind of you know given like cool punk names, cool punk band. Yeah, I think uh, it's like it's Cro-Mags and uh, Misfits. And yeah, and then when they're kind of like we might die now, um, Aaliyah Jokad's character is like Simon and Garfunkel is my Desert Island Band, and then Reese the MMA Joe Cole dude says Prince. And Prince had actually died in real life not long before this. And yeah. the cinema all kind of went like, oh, like out loud <laughs> in Dublin. Um, so, yeah, there, you know, you could feel it in the room. You could feel like a sense of tension. And what's interesting is when I went to see it, actually, like afterwards, I went to see Red Enemy play in the Workman's Club. So I went to a fucking... <laughs> Keeping your eye on, see if there's any docks around. Holy or... shit, man. Like going to like a fucking metal gig, you know, like in a small cram space. Now, the Red Enemy lads at this point should be pointed out are very nice fellas who aren't murderous fascists. And the gig was fun, but yeah, I was I was keeping my eyes open throughout. Yeah, I think I I went to see it, and then I I had to go to something else. I think I went to see Sing Street after, which you know not great, but I just felt like I needed to see something like wholesome because it was just like shook me. Yeah, how do you feel about the use of violence and gore in this? Um, I think we yeah, it, I don't think it is that gratuitous. It's like it's so impactful. Yeah, it's not Tarantino. But it, it doesn't like... it doesn't linger too much. Um. I do wonder about gratuity because he he has a tendency to reuse like certain gore, um, like in this movie that what kind of sets it off is uh, Emily getting stabbed in the side of the head by Verm, which is exactly the same stabbing that occurs in Blue Ruin. Uh, Hold the Dark also has like a stabbing in the head. He's gone like three movies in a row where someone's jaw has been blown out by a gun. Yeah. Like, and he keeps going back to them. They are, like, they're so horrific and they're so impactful because they kind of tend to come out of nowhere, but they're not, you know, they, it, it doesn't dwell. So It's definitely a trick. Like, it's yeah. a, like it is definitely like, like, like a, a filmmaking muscular technique and it feels impactful. It feels real. It feels like just really quite, literally quite shocking. And I mean, okay, so essentially like there is a moment where when they make a break for it, like, there's a part where like, your the aforementioned Daniel, who's you know uh, a skinhead, he comes in, he ends up trying to help them for a second, and it literally lasts about a second because yeah. he's like, "Hey, I know where this thing is, and I know where we can go," and and then next thing you know, literally gets his fucking head blown off, and it's just like Jesus Christ! Like it, everyone dies in this movie unceremoniously, including the band. So the band who are our heroes, and you're like, you know, I wonder, I wonder how it's gonna go. I wonder like like who's gonna make it out alive. I wonder like you know how like you know we're gonna get a happy ending here, right? So the neo Nazis have dogs on their side, attack dogs. and German-speaking pit bulls. Yeah, which is terrifying. And one of them chows down on frontman of the band Tiger's throat pretty fast. Yeah. Like, he's gone, just gone. Like, gets on top of him, rips his throat out, chews him, chew, like, chews his fucking neck for a while, and he's done. And again, we're like, what, 45, 50 minutes into the movie? He's just dead. He's not dead immediately, though, because, again, uh, I think we will have a clip of... Uh, Patrick Stewart, they they drag the bodies out, and Tiger hasn't yet died. No, no, you're, conf- you're am I confusing you're that, confusing with, uh, that with, uh, with 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 Prince Love and Reese because oh. that's the one. So the Tiger's the front man. 
he gets gone. He's the first one to go because they break out of the room and they're in like the staging area. Yeah, and, and Reese, dog, Reese goes to go out the window. Reese, as soon as it happens in in the space of like thirty seconds, yeah. so I can understand the confusion here because Tiger goes down and Reese is like fuck this and runs and flees out of a window. And as soon as he hits the ground out of the window, uh, a guy just starts hacking him with a machete, and you just hear the hacking. You see the hacking for about a second, and then like a guy kind of pulls him off him and, and says, "No, no, he's like, he's like, let him bleed." So yeah, let's let's let, let's hear that moment, shall we? You breathing? A little bit, yeah. Let him bleed. Later is better for time of death. And that really upset me. I remember like that one in particular was just like like the casualness of it and the fact that like the guy doing it also is like, you know, like he's kind of in awe of what he's doing. Like he's like happy about it and even that kind of the Patrick Stewart moment of like, you know, is he still breathing, let him bleed. It's just like it's those little details, they're just nasty. They're just like they're so fucking cold and awful and you're just sitting there being like i've got chills like this is not like this is not like oh class like this is not john wick no there's no this is not the raid this is not like even when the the neo-nazis are got like it's not it's not satisfying it's not like inglorious bastards where you're just like oh you're cheering when they get got like everybody that gets got in this it's a tough 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 one there was one on the nazi side where i remember in the cinema and i when i watched it again today that i was like I had to like stop myself from fucking shouting and roaring with, with cheers because it's just done so brilliantly. It's when Imogen Poots goes up behind a guy and oh. he's, he's wrestling with Anton Yelchin and she basically like fucking shoots him in the neck and the head. The double tap. It's just <laughs> like, again, it's just jaw, jaw dropping stuff. Yeah. So essentially like it even just like, the, again, the use of sounds here, like the Foley artists in this movie like made their money and there you have it. It's like two members of the band gone in seconds. Then Mark Webber gets his fucking head blown off. Then Aaliyah Shaw gets killed by a dog. Are, like, are, are the dogs like too much of a cheat device here for the, for, you know, for, for, for the villains um, and for the script? I don't think so because they again, like they play, they play into the cleanup job, like the 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 plotting that Darcy does on the spot of yeah, which is terrifying because it's like he has done this before. So the you know Darcy comes in and he's like he's like the wolf. He's just like okay. He assesses the situation. He's like what 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 can we use here? What can we use? He finds their uh, their kit that they use to siphon petrol. And he's like okay, we can work with this. And he's like move the van up the road and then we can you know say that they were trying to steal petrol. You know they're on uh, private property. There's a sign that says there's dogs here, so we'll use the dogs. They get attacked by dogs. Yeah, they're like don't use guns. Yeah. Don't use guns. Use knives. If you shoot someone, you're digging the bullets out. Yeah, like. Then the plan goes a bit to shit because they start fighting back, and then guns gotta be gotta be brought in because it turns out uh, Imogen Poot's character is quite resourceful. Uh, her connection to the group is that she, you know, is a skinhead, but she's not a Nazi. She says it herself, so I'm not a Nazi. She was friends with the girl who was killed, and they start fighting back eventually. Essentially, and there's a degree of tenacity to this because uh, Anton Yeltsin has this kind of thing about a bit, a bit of paintball game he wants to I love this scene um he he again like this isn't a movie where anyone gets a hero speech but in this sense he kind of he does get a moment where he's about to give a hero speech but then he just he gets totally cut off I suppose we can hear a clip of that we gotta treat this like paintball Rick Silva. <laughs> Help organize the paintball for 
Skato's bachelor party. We were short a few players to book the whole field, so they paired us up with these uh, ex-Marines. In the first few rounds, these guys just tore us to shreds. I mean, zero casualties on their side. I just cowered behind these trees till I got shot, <laughs> covered in paint. But Rick... I agree. You done? Yeah, so I just, I love that. He He's not a hero. Like, he, he is the protagonist, but, like, he's not a hero. He's not, he has no right to be giving a big rallying speech to, to others in the face of this. And he can't. And they realize that. And they're just like, no. <laughs> One of the ways in which they fight back is they kind of happens accidentally or is more of a resourceful thing where they put like a microphone on one of the speaker stacks, which causes feedback, which makes one of the dogs freak out. So they have to send in guys to, you know, to kind of undo that. And it gets to a stage where like they send in a couple of, uh, like of young red laces lads who I guess are looking to make their bones or whatever. And they've done a thing where like essentially Anton Yelchin all of a sudden has a shaved head and war paint. Well, a bit a bit later on, um, Amber lets him finish the the paintball story, so that's when they decide, you know, kind of just like chaos reigns, and that's when he shaves his head. That's when they have again like a nice callback to earlier in the film when uh, they're staying over in Tad's house, and he comes back from work, and Yelchin opens the door, and he's like, "Oh, you fell asleep first, and he has like whiskers drawn on his face. Yeah, yeah. So they call back to that by having them. You know, paint their face military style. Um, and trick the guys, because, I mean, essentially, they, they have discovered at this point, they've discovered an underground drug lab, which they which you can get into via the green room, via a, a, a trap door that they've knocked through, but you can't get out of it. And so they do a thing where, like, the two of the Nazis come in, and Anton Yelchin is, like, pretending to shout down, and he's wearing a jacket that you were wearing today. Yeah, unfortunate <laughs> choice. As, as he's posing <laughs> as a... choice for me po- today. Posing as a skinhead. And you get this kind of, you know, like I guess this film doesn't really have massive set pieces or anything, but like it is, it, like it is interesting because, like you know, when they dive into that, that drug lab briefly, where like uh, they take out a couple of guys, it's kind of like it's it's like it's like a Resident Evil scene or something, like where you where you you find the underground lab yeah. and the, like you know like it's got these massive sterile lighting effects and all that kind of stuff. So again, world building. I mean, like 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 staying in this one location and building the world up and down, like quite literally as you go. Like it's just so amazing how like much as you say this plot is on the periphery and a lot of details aren't filled in they're just sketched out that's that's fucking great storytelling like don't give me too much even like right now uh, no spoilers because I don't think you've played it through but I'm I'm playing Red Dead Redemption 2 at the moment and like a lot of that game is spelled out like every Rockstar game is. It's got the same flaws every Rockstar game does and there's elements to it where like you're just like, for fuck's sake, game, stop holding my hand. And, the, you know, the, the gameplay could be better, the combat isn't great, but the story is good and I like the characters. But there's a thing in the game where like you go in to like, read the journal of your of the main guy that you are, which the game never really prompts you to do it. Sometimes it just does it itself. But like I'm flicking, I flicked back through it all one day and I was reading some of the entries and some of the entries are just like devastating. Like they break yeah. your heart. But they're not like they're only there if you go looking for it. And with this film, you can unpack so much just by looking at a thing or listening to a certain line of dialogue and be like, "Oh, I, th- I think that's what that means." Because of course they would have this thing for that reason, as opposed to Jeremy Solomon not trusting you and fucking Jordan Peele screaming at you. you yeah, know? I mean, I was just going to make that reference. Is that particularly in horror or thrillers? It's like the unknown is what is scary. It's like. We, the audience, are essentially as confused as the ain't rights here. Um, so holding everything back 
it just kind of ramps it up. Yeah, it's almost like a bizarre like spiritual sequel to From Dust Till Dawn. <laughs> like in that like you're in this position where you think you're in a certain environment and halfway through you're like, Oh my god, it's been turned on its head in the worst possible way and there's clearly a history here. Like, you know, you mentioned that like Patrick Stewart has done this before. This is not new. Yeah. And, you know, even like in terms of disposing, like uh the band Cowcatcher, who we've mentioned like we've mentioned how terrifying that front man is. So maybe we should just have a taste of just how terrifying he was. Your set was pretty good. What? What was the name of your second to last song? Toxic evolution. It's fucking hard, man. That's the one I did her to. So if you haven't seen it, like, just picture this guy. This guy is like a big fucking, you know, meathead dude who looks like he could just kill you in three seconds. And he terrifies the life out of poor young Anton Yelchin. Yeah, immediately he's, um, when they play Nazi Punk's Fuck Off, he's standing in the crowd, immediately, like, spits his beer more menacingly than Triple H has ever spat water out of his mouth <laughs> uh, towards them. And you just, this guy is, yeah, he's They terrifying. kind of, like, they appear to kind of get off scot-free, but, like, there's there's a suggestion and kind of a confirmation that Patrick Stewart is gonna, is, like, has given them drugs that will basically overdose them. Yeah, again, like, just on the periphery. I, like, I don't think I fully twigged that the first time, just because I, didn't, yeah. I was so shocked by everything that was going on yeah. that, yeah, it's just like it's a throwaway line. He throws a racial epithet, and then you're just like, oh, and then he's like, oh, there's something bad going around. Yeah, and he, then you get like a little bit of a small one later. And like, again, like, you know, they go out in a pretty grim way as well. They're just sitting in this disgusting room. One of them has a syringe sticking out of him. The other hasn't even noticed he's eating some slop as he watches <laughs> like this horrific television screen. And like, again, set design, like production design, whoever put this film together. And again, on a budget, they nailed it. They fucking nailed every single aspect of how this film looks and feels. And that extends to the aforementioned sequence where, you know, Imogen Poots uh, double taps that Nazi down in the, in, in the lab basement. There's not really much place else for the film to go. And I appreciate that because, like, this is a trim movie, 95 minutes. In a perfect world, all films would be 95 minutes or less. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and essentially, yeah, like, Patrick Stewart um, goes out eventually on his, on his back yeah kind of again unceremoniously like he's he he gets shot you know walking away he turns his back on them um obviously he was reaching for a gun which we we kind of uh big justin has a scene where he's talking about how this gun we've played earlier it, it has five cartridges because um they're big <laughs> and when you see that gun go off <laughs> It's like, good lord, I'm glad that didn't hit anyone. It's yeah, Patrick Stewart was too busy being shot in the fucking head as it happens. That is the ending of the film where it ends at like, the residence and they were laying out the bodies of the band to make it look like, um, you know, the, like to stage, like, like Anthony Nelson kind of twigs it. He goes, they're making it look like it's our fault. Um, there's a great line before that, though, because like making Blair, you know, who's, I guess, the most sympathetic member of the bad team. Yeah, and probably like the, the only character in the movie that has... An arc, yeah. Aside from maybe one of the pit bulls, <laughs> he um he basically says, you know, I, I want to go to jail. You know, I didn't know that any of this would happen, and he leads uh, Anton Yelchin and Imogen Boots carried right into the woods to the residence. But well, he doesn't want. He he kind of is trying to ward them away from going there. He's like, just get out, just go. You know, just leave. Yeah. But they've got a job to finish, and they ask what's happening at the residence, and Macon Blair says something you don't want to see. 
which yeah. is again it's just now granted like you know there is show and tell here because you do see it but just those little seeds you know like just those little moments of dread and the, the, there's a portent of doom that hangs over this film and i mean i mean i, I can you can you enjoy this film I, I i think it's i think it's brilliant i think i think it's a fantastic film i think it's one of the great horrors of this decade I, i'd recommend it for sure and i am even though we spoil the plot for everybody but like Oof. <laughs> I could, like, I, could oof. I could definitely yeah I, it's so I could tough. definitely recommend it there's so much yeah to like to like about it it's such as a tough said, fucking film it is a tough one but like you know sometimes you want that in a in in your thriller to be literally even though you've seen it a couple I've seen it a couple of times and like all the bits they still still get me um just on on making Blair I wanted to touch upon one of the you know it's it's front loaded with its comedy once things start to happen it's not that funny but I do find that Sonia is good at injecting very dark humor into into places I think particularly in Blue Ruin after um you know a kind of a bungled uh, revenge job that um making Blair also attempts to like puncture a tire but he's basically got a steak knife so <laughs> <laughs> the tire is winning that um, and he ends up just like cutting his hand open. Uh, while here, you have a scene where the, the the two young the two young young neo-Nazis are going down into the drug lab, and like they're calling for help. And Macon Blair is just like power washing all, all the uh, all the bar. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, like 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 it's it's not it's not too heavily impinged upon. Like it's not meant to like you know crack your sides open. No, it's but just it's, like it's a nice little yeah, it's nice got little nod. So yeah, I mean like essentially. Uh, we got a well. We, you get another one example of that though with the very ending. You get a great, a great cut to credits in this one. Yeah, and and can I kind of point out again? I did mention that the uh, the pitbull gets an arc. That scene where the dog goes back to its owner, goes back to its owner, who's been shot, and sits down beside him. Yeah, like that that'll always get me. I wondered about that scene. I was like, how do you get the dog to do that? And I was like, working with animals must be tough, and we'll get to hold the dark. Yeah, they yeah they're they're very well trained. Very well-trained animals. Yeah, great cut to credits, as I know. They kind of call back the Desert Island thing, and uh, Anthony Nelson gets, once again, unceremoniously cut off, and you wonder where they go from here. But again, you know, no sequel tease, no nothing. It's just in and out. It's grim as fuck. Uh, it's a tough... White-knuckle thrill ride. Yeah, it's a tough movie. I First time I've seen it in four years. I mean, I don't think I'm going to go back to it again for quite some time, but I, I just found myself taken all the way back into that world. And that's what it was for me. It was the fact that I, I was transported. I was brought into this kind of thing. I, I, I admire this film so much in terms of what was achieved. Like, it could have been two and a half hours. It could have been two hours. It could have had so much unnecessary backstory and exposition. It could have had more characters. It could have had more characters with more screen time. It could have had stupid nonsense that would never have happened. This felt like what would happen in a situation like this where no one is prepared for it, apart from people who might be, and even the deck had stacked against them, it's just it's it's a fucking excellent excellent film. Yeah, um, I totally agree with with everything there. Um, yeah, I just love how succinct it is. Um, like it 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 does. I think get the essence of punk rock if you if that can be done in a in a thriller movie. Um, and again, like performances across the board. We've kind of touched on Anton Yelchin. He is, I think incredible in this like i you know he he kind of came on very early he felt like he was kind of forced upon us a bit like he had his kind of breakout in alpha dog and then suddenly he's appearing in like two big blockbusters and 
then kind of that didn't seem to work for him and kind of found like this was kind of like he was finding a good niche I, he was, I would have yeah. liked to have seen him work with I mean well okay first of all real quick just on the punk thing one thing I do really like about this film is once it starts going off and they plug out the fucking music for the most part you don't get too much music you get like a, a, like kind of a thrown in there as like a distraction play at one point yeah. but, but the score a, itself is actually good it's very good it's making Blair's brothers who again they score all of Sonia's work it kind of has a good beginning like ethereal like when we were talking about all those beautiful shots at the start and then it gets pretty down and dank as well as it goes on and kind of is very 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 good at, at building dread you mentioned Yelchin there um you mentioned the blockbusters he was in so he was in like terminator salvation in which he played the young kyle reese now that film was garbage but he, i mean like you could have told me that they actually managed to transport michael bean back in time because my god yeah it's ridiculous. <laughs> like he's like the harpy of that movie. Uh, Fright Night. Is that the one you were kind of thinking of? The um, remake. Well, no. He the same year as uh, Terminator Salvation. He oh, yeah, Star Trek. Trek as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think he was someone who kind of brightened up the movies he was in, and was definitely finding his way. I think you know as a character actor and someone who was working very well in indies. Tragically passed away in June of 2016 at the age of 27 in a freak accident in which essentially he was like what, opening the gate to his house or something and yeah. his, his fucking 4x4 came down the ramp yeah. and pinned him yeah. against the wall and he died horribly, obviously. Uh, it was legitimately horrific and shocking death uh, at the age of fucking 27. Um, yeah, great actor and absolutely had his moments, uh, including one in Kirby Enthusiasm that I know you're fond of. Yeah, um, it was one I kind of, I guess this was like the my introduction to Anton Yelchin, but then probably didn't put two and two together a couple of years later when I saw Alpha Dog. Um, so I'm going to play you a little clip. Okay. I'd like you to shuffle this, please. All right. And efficiently and yeah. any way possible. Okay, fine. Okay. So I'll shuffle. Okay, and this is your card. Wow. Yeah. How'd you do that? I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Sorry. Come on, just do it. How'd you do the trick? No, no, magicians don't tell people how they do their tricks. Yeah, well, you're not really a magician. Oh, yeah, I am. Well, because you do one trick, that makes you a magician? Did I trick you? Good old Larry. That's smart once again. Yeah, I mean, this like just shows you the potential of what he had like he was 14 in this scene and he's just like going toe to toe with Larry David um, leaving such a memorable uh, performance um, yeah I thought it was fantastic there's a nice moment as well in like that third Star Trek movie which I guess came out after he died yeah um, he played Chekhov so there's a moment where like they're toasting vodka shots or something and there's like a third one for him so you know I think as as, as those kind of movies go and as those kind of you know popcorn tributes could be it was a nice little touch uh he's missed for sure Solnier has gone on to make other stuff uh how do you rate him generally um so uh, we said he's made four films um murder party i'm not a fan of it's like it's a pretty it feels very studenty i mean it's like, very studenty it's like some people i think could say that he is a nasty filmmaker if you were to watch green room like there is certain incredible nasty moments about green room and blue ruin and hold the dark um i don't agree with that but i do in terms of murder party i'd agree with that yeah it's kind of gross in places yeah not great at all um i think blue ruin is incredible absolutely amazing um fantastic inversion of revenge and basically kind of front-loading 
the revenge in it again like taking someone who's not very good at doing something and just like propelling them into a situation that um just gets worse and worse and worse and worse um obviously love green room Hold the Dark was interesting. I watched that today after yeah. Green Room. Hell of a double bill. So Hold the Dark is the most recent one. It came out last year. It's a Netflix film. Um, a rare leading role for Jeffrey Wright. Also stars Alexander Skarsgård, Riley Keough, and James, James Badge. Badge Dale. Yeah. So this film, I mean, like, from, I didn't know much about it. And just from looking at the imagery associated with it, I thought it was going to be like The Grey. I thought it was going to be like Jeffrey Wright versus Wolves in the Snow. It kind of isn't. Uh, the plot essentially is about Jeffrey Wright plays a guy who uh, wrote a book about living amongst the wolves. He's he's a naturalist, I guess. And Riley Keough's character writes to him, says that her young boy has been taken by wolves. It's in this kind of remote area in Alaska. And he's like the third kid to the, the, for this to happen to. Can she come and kill the wolf? She thinks her boy is probably dead. He meets up with her. She seems quite shell-shocked and odd. And then he goes to do that, but discovers that there's something else going on. There's a bit of a mystery happening. Meanwhile, Alexander Skarsgård is her husband who's over in Iraq. You get a sequence of him being there, which is quite harrowing. Uh, He comes back and things go very strange indeed. It's not what I was expecting. Uh, I wasn't surprised to learn it was based on a book because to me, while watching it, I was like, this really feels like a book. It has all the trappings of uh, a small town mystery, yeah. uh, complete with unsatisfying ultimate kind of narrative and conclusion. Um, by the end of it, I struggled to know what the point was. I felt that Jeffrey Wright was quite wasted. as like He's not really much of a character. Yeah. And at times it was both silly and like downright nasty. Yeah. Um I was I was interested when I first watching it because again like he's kind of scaled up budget wise and like he's getting to do things that he hasn't done before um and I think in terms of that in terms of scale in terms of look like again absolutely incredible um but yeah story wise like you know he's been so economic in what he's done before um it's noticeable that he didn't write this it was written by Megan Blair um but yeah it kind of felt like it was reaching to say something but all it seemed to be kind of saying is that there you know there's an inherent darkness in us all which you know i can kind of pass on that yeah i've seen way too many films that just say that i mean to be fair performances are strong it looks good and it definitely has individual moments for sure it's not a bad film it's Uh, not um i find it interesting Uh, i don't think we're going to go full into true detective but he so he directed the first two episodes of true detective they share a lot of dna of of season three of season three um, this movie and True Detective, you know, it's essentially yeah. about a missing kid. Um, I can see, you know, they both have a very, very similar set piece. That's true. Right bang in the middle of them. Yeah. Um, Hold the Dark's one is utterly incredible. And like, it is. Like, and it's also like a part of me was like, this is ridiculous. It's and a little, yeah, it's a little, it goes but, gratuitous. But, but then a part of me was like, I mean, I that exact gun has been used in shootings like that yeah. in America not too long ago. I think it's it's more the 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 post is that kind of that it's just like oh that happened, but it's like people would you know that was a pretty insane thing to happen. Yeah. Um. I want to point out Julian Black Antelope in that scene when James Badge Dale comes to the door. 
just like silent menace calling him guy. Yeah. Oh, the like, amount, your, your wife's going to get a phone call. The amount, times, like, the amount of times he says guy. Yeah. And also, uh, spoilers for Hold the Dark, but uh, interesting to see James Bajdale go out unceremoniously at the end of this film yeah. as opposed to at the start of The Grey. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, just, it was a tough film. I don't know what the point was. I would hope that Solonier is not losing his way as someone with something to say. Uh, definitely in for whatever he does next. But, Absolutely. But like that one just felt like a bit of a meh, I don't know. But you know, happy for him to keep working with Megan Blair. They seem like, oh Megan Blair also wrote himself in and finally got killed this time, I guess, you know. Good for him. Yeah. Um and he's going on now to write and direct the remake of the Toxic Avenger. What's that about? Yeah, I, I've no it. I've no time for it. No. I don't care. A, like again, if you want to talk about truly ugly, nasty pieces of shit oh, like God, that first yeah. one <laughs> is is it. Gross. So yeah, that was Green Room. Uh, wrap up time, I guess. What's your Desert Island band? So I want to put a qualifier on this. I want you to give me your Desert Island band, but then also give me your Desert Island band when you know you're about to die and you're going to true your true reveal. So is this Are like they both going to be converged? But is this like do I get like their entire like audio that they've ever put out? Yeah, of course. And when I'm about to die, it's like okay. So I mean, like mm, um. <coughs> it's got to be some kind of combination of like Frank Ocean, Kanye West, Nine Snails, M83, Dylan Escape Line, Converge, doesn't it? If I guess I have to pick just one of those, I'll go Explosions in the Sky. <laughs> I don't know. And, and you are about to face your end at the hand of a neo-Nazi with a machete. What's the last thing I want to listen to? Or, or I don't know. I, this is your, what's your true answer? Or I guess Explosions in the Sky is your true answer. It probably is, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say so. It's hard. It's not easy. I, no, no, no. I, I think it's Dylan Escape Line. And also, to be fair, if I'm going out swinging to a bunch of fucking neo-Nazis, Dillinger Escape Plan is the one I want to hear. Milk Lizard, man. Nice uh, nice reference to him in this movie as well, in uh, Tad's house. He's got a poster. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say Faint No More, and then maybe, as I'm about to draw my last breath, I will say Huey Lewis in the news. Whoa. That's, I guess that's my <laughs> going, going back okay, on it. Okay, very good. Do you have a quiz for me? I do. Um, Yay. So our quizzes have kind of been about box office um but i don't really think the box office of a movie that made you know its budget back and its budget was quite small to begin with is all that interesting so we're gonna we're gonna play a game of is it this or is it that so i'm gonna give you the names of some things and i want you to tell me is it a b movie or is it the name of a neo-nazi band holy fuck also sorry i'm i'm what is your google search history looking like <laughs> questionable because i did this on my work laptop as well excellent so i have to guess if this is a b movie or the name of an actual li- an actual neo-nazi punk band how many of these are there i've got eight Fuck. <laughs> You're going- okay okay let's go okay first up dogs of hell b movie yeah, correct. Uh, it is about the U.S. military has bred and trained Rottweilers, which have now escaped, and they are heading for a peaceful community. What they did not count on was the local sheriff. Wow. <laughs> um, sledgehammer. <laughs> it's definitely a neo-Nazi band. It's a B-movie. Fuck off! Uh, this film tells the story of a young boy who murdered his mother and her lover with a sledgehammer. Ten years after the murder and the child's mysterious disappearance, a group of teens stay in the house for a weekend when they are when they are terrorized by the ghost of the little boy, who can wield a sledgehammer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, Skullhead. N- nasty band. Yeah, they are uh, from Newcastle, and they are in the subgenre of rock against communism, which is kind of like a English. Um, 
neo-Nazi movement uh, from the 70s, early 80s, National Front. We should know at this point, just in case anyone uh, has like skipped ahead by accident, we are not endorsing this. <laughs> we are not endorsing these bands or what not they stand all. for at all. <laughs> um, all right, next one. The Initiation. Oh, that's a fucking. That's a really. It's got to be both. Is there? Is, is this a trick? Because like, surely there's. Like, I could see both, but I'm. If I have to pick just one, it's going to be another band. It's a B movie. For fuck's sake! A sorority member who, after being plagued by a horrific recurring dream her whole life, is stalked <laughs> along with a group of pledges during their initiation ritual in a department store after hours. I call bullshit. I can see the band photograph for the initiation. Goat Moon. I hate this quiz. Uh, that's a band. Correct. They are a Finnish Nazi black metal band. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, Screwdriver. Oh, that's a very famous yeah. uh, neo-Nazi band. Yeah, yeah, they are. Who before well, originally were a punk band with BBC Two's Mark Radcliffe on drums, and then he left, and then they became. You are joking. Then they became a white supremacist band. Oh my god! Yeah. He must have to explain that every day. I'd imagine so. <laughs> we ever in a band, mate? I was. <laughs> Once. Um, no remorse. Band. Correct. Another uh, English rock against communism. And last one. Dead and Buried. B-movie. Yeah. Okay. I, I did okay there. Uh, the, I, pull, I pulled it back. This was about a film about a small town where a few tourists are murdered, but their corpses begin to reanimate. Written by Dan O'Bannon, who also created Alien. Wow. Okay. There you go. You learn something every day. Can you please clear your Google search history? I will be doing that. I'll be destroying my laptop. <laughs> in, a, in a barrel full of acid. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, there's only one thing to do now, isn't there? There only is. It's to tease what we're doing next. Now, okay, so I thought about this, right? And I thought, I thought we'll stay in the world of fiction. And I thought also we need something that is not as heavy as this. It needs to be something, you know, a bit schlocky perhaps, okay? And so I narrowed it down to two choices. And I, in the end... I, I'm gonna have to go in. I'm gonna have to go full schlock on this. Get ready. It's time for fear. A fear that turns to horror. The irresistible vampire Lestat. A presence so powerful. It has awakened an ancient evil. <laughs> I've actually never seen this film. Fantastic. But I'm pretty sure I probably own the soundtrack. So Queen of the Damned, right, is the sequel to Interview with the Vampire. Now, how, what, what has it got to do with music, Dave? Well, I'll tell you. Lestat becomes a fucking rock star. Not only that, Aaliyah is the titular Queen of the Damned. And I think there's a cameo by a certain new metal band in there as well. Is it Korn? I believe it is. It is Korn, yeah. So Queen of the Damned, a uh, massive flop came out in I think 2001 I haven't seen it since the time would have watched it on VHS you know and Tom Cruise nowhere to be found big Stuart Townsend on the other hand (laughs) tune that scenery I'm going to put it out there right now this is not a good film it's a bad film and it's a ridiculous film and it's time 
And that's what we're going to do next time on No Popcorn. Queen of the Damned, how do you feel about it? I'm incredibly excited. As I said, never saw it. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have the best time with the soundtrack, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's from that time period. So I, I don't, I actually, I didn't look it up. I don't know what's in there, but I'm going to assume, I, 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 I wouldn't surprise me if, if there's a coal chamber or a fear factory. Nailed on, on Godsmack song. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, my name is David William Hanready. He was David Higgins. That was Green Room. Next time is Queen of the Damned. This has been No Popcorn. There will be No Popcorn. Tune in to No Encore once in a while, why don't you? Bye-bye. Fucking up and it's just hope you found me thinking for yourself You ain't half good, you just break your hair But a jack still lives inside your head Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up! Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up! To come the fuck get out of here You ain't no better than the bouncers We ain't trying to be police and you ain't the cops It ain't anarchy Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks Fuck up! Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network Looking for a way to make online learning a better option for your family? When it comes to virtual learning, experience matters. Tuition-free K-12-powered schools are ready to put over 20 years of experience to work for you, giving your child the personalized learning they deserve without disruptions. With a K-12-powered school, students gain the skills they need to be prepared for their next steps in life, building a better future for each one of us. K-12, education for any one. Learn more at k12.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.